If you would be turning to Joel chapter 2, we'll be in verses 1 through 11. Uh, And as you're turning there, let me just remind you of a couple of things that's important about the book of Joel. Do remember that it's not, it doesn't address a specific sin. So it doesn't say, hey, you are guilty of this, like many of the other prophets do. Many of the other prophets often deal with issues of justice. Uh, They often deal with issues of worship and, and things of that nature, but nothing specific is said in the book of Joel. So many think, and I think this is correct, that its intent was to be used as an encouragement for worship that it would, be, uh, it would encourage us toward a liturgy of lamentation, something we are not real comfortable with, by the way, right? We don't like sorrow. We don't, we don't really like grief. And there's a good reason for that. Will grief and sorrow be in the new heavens and new earth? No, in fact, we're going to hear in our benediction that one of the great blessings that we have coming is that Christ himself will wipe away every tear. And there will be no more sorrow. So it is a good thing, in one measure, that we are not comfortable with grief and sorrow. It is a good thing, in some measure, that we don't want to stay in the space of lamentation all the time. That is not healthy or good. However, there is a time for it. There is a season for it between the now and the not yet. And remember from last week, it is important that we frequently pause and say, hey, Lord, what time is it? Where are we? Uh, and, and what do we need to, means of grace-wise, take up and use? Maybe there's something going on because of some sin, either in my life or in us collectively, some way in which we're being disobedient. Or, as oftentimes is true of the disasters that, that are Mike and, and those who serve at the disaster response warehouse that they serve, it's just life in a fallen world. It's not necessarily God's judgment on North Alabama or Houston, Texas, or the Outer Banks of North Carolina. That's not always the case. We just live in a broken world in which the ground fights back at us. There are other seasons in which it is true that it is God stirring something within his people. But here's the good news. In both cases, are we to figure out what's wrong or to run to the one who knows what's right? No matter the circumstance, we're to always seek the Lord our God while he may be found. It's one of the reasons that we read Psalm 77. It's interesting what the psalmist says there, and you could miss this. He says, I will not be comforted. What he means by that is, is that he will, he will only essentially be comforted by what the Lord has done and will do, that he would not accept the comfort that the world offers or any silly or banal or simple means of comfort. No, it would require the Lord himself and his works alone to comfort the psalmist who is in such grief over whatever was going on in in that particular psalm. And so it's important that we also remember that the book of Joel is so beautifully crafted. It's poetry, in, in, in a sense. It is apocryphal literature, which means that it uses some images that, that decenter us. You do remember the locust plague from chapter one, this uh, kind of interesting thing that we're not real familiar with. It throws us off a little bit, but there's also it was described as fire. It's also described as an army. In chapter two, he's going to take all three of those motifs and weave them together into one image, actually. And because of the structure of Joel, perspective is important. Chapter one was from the perspective of the earth. 
Remember, it was creation that was groaning under the weight of God's judgment as a result of sin and death. This is actually going to be from the heavenly perspective. And it's going to be really important, especially for next week, as we talk about rending our hearts and not just our garments. That what we saw from the earthly perspective in terms of fasting and lamentation and the outward display, there must be an inward reality. Otherwise, it is no true repentance at all. And so this is going to be from the heavenly perspective, and that helps us to understand some things. Now, that's going to really be important for when we deal with the book of Revelation for Christmas and Easter, because those perspectives help you understand interpretively a bit of what's going on, right? And so, as we are uh, about to turn to Joel chapter 2, I do have a question for you. Uh, What causes you to pause and take stock of your life? Now, if you're like most people, what causes you to pause and take stock of your life usually is tragedy of some kind, right? An illness that you get diagnosed with. It could be the death of someone uh, that, is, that you're close to. It could be the death of someone just that you know within a friend group that kind of rattles you and causes you to pause and think, wow, life really is brief. It is but a vapor, and what am I doing with what I have? Why? It could be that your marriage finds itself in a decentered place. It could be good things as well. Usually we take stock of our lives when we have a child, right? Suddenly you've got to think about the world different. You've got to think about things differently. You can't just go like you used to. You now have this, this child to care for and think about, another person to factor into everything. It could be job change. It could be the graduating of school and kind of thinking, all right, what's next? It could be meeting somebody new. There's all kinds of things that usually cause us to pause and take stock of our lives. And that's, that's great. That is actually a grace of the Lord that enough, we're not allowed to go through the whole of life without having to pause and reflect. But as God's people, we would be better suited to reflect on a more regular basis. At minimum, this is where the Lord's Day Sabbath is a real gift to us every single week. We get the opportunity to gather together and be reminded of who and whose we are, right? So while, yes, we're in Joel in the Old Testament, we're not going to talk about that without remembering Christ, right? It would be a devastating thing for us to only tell half the story, which is why before I ever open up word one of Joel, you've heard the assurance of your pardon. That's why that occurs earlier in the service, so that you wouldn't be confused, so that when we get to these things, these hard things that Joel may have to say to us about repentance and lamentation and fasting and sin and judgment, that we hear it as people who have already been reminded, if you are in Christ, You are pardoned. And what should matter to you is that those in your spheres of influence may see the day of the Lord without Christ as the one who would help them to endure such judgment. And so it would also be important if if we were a more reflective people. This was one of the things that we really emphasized in the leadership cultivation course, that we uh, wanted to see folks be able to reflect on their lives and think about things while it's good, while it's, while it's going along, that you would be more proactive than anxiety-ridden and reactive. Think about that. What, what would actually help that to shift in your life? 
Well, being able to reflect and pause and take stock and ask, what time is it? Where am I? Orienteering is very important. We get the opportunity to do that every day. I love how in the midst of great sorrow, think about it, in the middle of lamentations, Jeremiah is able to say that I wait patiently upon the Lord. His mercies are new every single when. Mourning every single day that his mercy is new. Now, why would that be important to us? Well, because we're still in a fallen world. Christ has not returned. All things have not yet been made new. There is still sorrow, still tears, still a time for lamentation and fasting. The bridegroom is no longer with us in the same sense that he will be with us when he returns. Now, he is with us and that the Holy Spirit dwells within us, but that's, that's, we're still seeing in shadow. Remember uh, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. We still look through a, a, a mirror darkly. We don't yet see it in full. And so it would be important if we more regularly paused and took stock of our lives and, and, and were able to be serious about that, but yet serious in the sense that we can still laugh at the fact that we're forgiven people. I think I shock some people sometimes whenever they tell me some horrible thing that they've done or think they've done, and I, I crack up laughing if I know they're forgiven people. Uh, and you may think, that's horrible pastoring. Maybe. Uh, but, but I think it's important to, to be able to remember that's not the end of the story. That your failure to, to be perfect between the now and the not yet was never the point. So it certainly can't be the end of the story. That God has so graciously and hilariously redeemed and forgiven us, his people. We should take stock of that. We should take sin very seriously. We should take our forgiveness even more seriously, which allows us to take joy in the midst of great darkness. It allows us to be able to lament knowing that it is not the only emotion we will be left with. That we can sorrow for a season because it is but a season. And so let's keep that in mind as we step into Joel chapter 2. We'll pick it up in verse 1. And this is the main thing that I want us to take home uh, from, from this passage, is that we are called to take seriously the impact of the coming day of the Lord, knowing that it can only be endured by faith alone in Christ alone through God's grace alone. So if you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, this is the first nine verses of Joel chapter two. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountain a, a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns." The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with rumbling of chariots, they leap on tops of the mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle." 
Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. Now, how do we know this is from heaven's perspective? What well, says to blow a trumpet in Zion? So Zion, anytime you see that in the Old Testament, that is the dwelling place of God. That is where his throne is located on a mountain. And so this is from the heavenly perspective. So what this tells us is that heaven is very concerned with what goes on on the earth. Think about what Jesus prayed in that, that prayer that he taught us to pray. He said, let it be on earth as as it is in heaven. So it's not that earth and heaven are so separate that they have no, there's no sort of, of interaction between them. No, heaven is very concerned with what is taking place on the earth because what's taking place on the earth ultimately is what glorifies God. What's taking place on the earth is ultimately what grows the family of God bigger, which is why every time, and we saw it even in the assurance of pardon this week, a woman finds a lost coin. How did heaven respond? It responds in the same way. Whenever a lost sinner comes home, we saw the week before about when a lamb goes off, he, the shepherd's going to leave the 99 and go find the one. And when that one is brought home, a great party is thrown. Next week, we're going to see a party thrown for the prodigal when he returns. And so heaven is very concerned what's going on on the earth, and, 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 and it also means that it is judgment coming from on high, even though it is the, the use of an earthly army. As we've said before, yes, there could have been a locust plague in specific, but more than likely, the locusts, the fire, the army is in reference to one of the, the surrounding nations that is being used to judge uh, Judah's sin, right, and carry them into exile at some point. And so, so what we see is that this, this warning trumpet blast, which is commonly what you see in the Old Testament and in the New, you see it in the seven trumpets in the book of Revelation. These are warning blasts being issued to let folks know now is the time to repent. So what's important to know is that from the time the trumpet gets blown to judgment falling, is a, a space of time that only God understands and knows. But it's always gracious, and it always allows for the people to respond. We're actually going to see this more next week when God uh, responds, but. What a great word that we so often run into in Scripture. That means it's not the way, it's, it's not the way it has to be. So a trumpet is blown. The people are called to tremble. Right? So this trembling should be a, a response to the goodness and the glory of God being taken away because this is darkness is coming. This is the darkness of judgment that falls upon the land. And as you notice, the description that it gives is, again, he takes and mingles together this issue of, of them being like fire, completely destructive and no one, no, no weapon formed against them is going to succeed, that whatever God has ordained cannot be thwarted. And that's important for us to remember. That means that, that the only means of engaging are repentance. 
The only, the only means of us being able to stand against what will come in the judgment of the Lord is what he has provided for us. If we try to say, nah, well, wait a minute, now I'm, I, didn't, I wasn't part of that national sin. I didn't, I didn't engage in that, so I don't think I should have to pay for it. That sound familiar to anybody in here? No, you, you're part of it. You're in community. You don't get to get out from under the umbrella. Everybody has to answer. Everybody plays a part. We're not just individuals. You don't get to say, yeah, but I, I, didn't, I didn't participate in all that. I, now think about it, the book of Daniel. Daniel was a teenager. He was orthodox before he's taken into exile. He is orthodox in exile, and he never comes home. Never. He dies in Babylon. Why didn't he first and foremost say, well, Lord, I, I was good. I don't understand why I'm having to suffer. Me and these other guys that you're going to throw into the fire. He doesn't argue with the sovereign ordination of the Lord, his God. He recognizes that this is part of it. We are in this together. He understood that when one suffers, we all suffer. When one rejoices, we all rejoice. You see the same thing in Ezra and Nehemiah, these men who were faithful. And sometimes they got to see a little bit of the mercy and glory and grace of God, and sometimes they didn't. And so it's important that we also recognize that though we are radical in our individualism in our culture, the Bible doesn't have a category for that. And nor really does the culture. And so it's important that we recognize that as anyone might suffer, it, we should care. That the coming day of the Lord, we shouldn't just say, well, I, I'm, I think I'm good. Uh, Jesus and I, are, we're in good shape. But whatever happens to y'all, it's not on me. What's interesting, because uh, he's got a little something to say to Ezekiel about that when he calls him to be the watchman, if you remember. And he says, listen, Ezekiel, here's the deal. You're not responsible for how they respond to what you say to them, but let me tell you how their blood will land on your hands if you don't tell them. If you don't tell them the truth of what's coming and they die in their sin not knowing, I'm going to charge you with their death. You may say, well, that's Old Testament. That's, that's not. No. Uh, the generations have been entrusted to us, the church, right? Uh, the, the places where we live, God has sovereignly ordained where we live, where we work, where we play, where we do what we do, and has surrounded us with families and people that need us, that need what we have, that need to hear the hope of the gospel. Because I don't know if you're paying attention at all, and some of you, I think, are. We live in interesting times. It's been interesting since East of Eden, actually. Uh, I'm reading Dostoevsky's The Diaries of a Writer. It was written in 1867. And again, I could pull some of that stuff out of there, and you'd think he was talking about us today. He's talking about the, the youth don't listen to nobody, and the liberals and the conservatives are messing everything up. And I don't know why he has a southern accent like that. Maybe he's from southern Russia somewhere. Uh, but he's, you could rip it right from our own headlines. He, there was convulsions going on. They were, almost, they were going to go to war with Europe at some point. They were, being, they, were be, they were immigrants that were ruining everything, everything Russian. 
Uh, people were cutting down trees. What? <laughs> they were destroying the land. Like, it was, it was the same convulsions that we are going through. And the cure remains the same. Interestingly, Dostoevsky, you know what he says the cure is? Christ. Now, it was orthodoxy, and it was a particular brand of orthodoxy. I'm not saying I understand, uh, and the little funny hats and all that stuff they wear, but at least he thought the cure ultimately was not governance, was not a new czar, was not a new leader, not communism, none of the stuff that was coming. He saw that it was Christ. And the cure remains the same for us today, that if you want for folks to uh, get their heads on straight and fly right, whatever that may mean, whatever the people group it is we're talking about, let's make them family. Let's make them part of a family that has uh, some banks of the river, that cares about the future of this world, that cares about it from a heavenly perspective, that cares about their eternity and the generations that are coming. Right? Whatever you may think of Greta Thunberg and kind of how she's going about it, but she genuinely believes she has no hope and no future. At 16, do you have any idea of the anxiety? We can, we can argue the justification of that. We live in the single greatest, whatever. And she's not the only one who believes that, by the way. That is the current discussion that's going on. Think of the neurotic uh, An anxious, ridden people that that is forming, true or no, doesn't matter. The reality, perception's real and its consequences, right? What do we have to offer? Not just the spiritual, but the tangible. That's why I love that apocryphal literature is both heaven and earth. It doesn't leave a perspective out. It includes creation. It includes the spiritual. So we have the opportunity to speak into these things, not just to, to dismiss, not to, not to render foolish, but to speak, speak a word of truth and grace and peace that has genuine ability to transform something. And so here, this word that's coming from heaven, though, is a word of judgment that is sounding like thunder across the land. And the people are called to tremble because there's this army that's coming that they cannot withstand. And notice how much it sounds not just like people, but sin. Right? Think of the description he gives here in verse 9. They leap upon the city, they run upon the walls, they climb up into the houses, and they enter the windows like a thief permeates everything. And so it's important that we recognize what the cure really is, that we be able to articulate with our neighbors and friends and family within our spheres of influence, with intelligence, with creativity. That's one of the things I love about what Mike's doing. I, I wish you could have heard more of his story because so much of it was he really didn't know what was going to happen next, but he prayed and said, Lord, what would you have me to do? And a, a door would open, and he would step through it, he and his family. And he was offered probably one of the worst jobs ever, right? We, we're not, we don't have any money, but you get to go raise your funding for something nobody's ever heard of. Good luck. No, good providence. Right? And so, so I love that creatively he's using his gifts in a way that 
it's not really kind of the norm for the church. And how might we be able to use more of our giftings and abilities in broader ways and categories to creatively point out where the kingdom has already come and is breaking through and breaking in as we draw closer and closer to the day of the Lord when Christ will return. Judgment will fall for those who don't know him in sin and death. They'll be dealt with, as will Satan. And we will have the opportunity to be made new. Why would we not want more people to be involved in that? Why would we want people to meet God as divine judge instead of Abba Father? And so this should actually stir us not to tremble just for ourselves, but to want to get on mission. To want to engage in the sharing of the gospel. Again, I'll say this. I know I'm talking to 70, 80% of you who are introverts. You're dying inside every time you hear the word mission, evangelism, etc. But you're doing it already. You understand? It doesn't matter introvert or extrovert. You are witnessing already with how you're living your life. Some of you will be more, more verbose in how you go about that. That's how you're gifted. That's great. Some of you, it will be just being hands and feet, a word fitly spoken in due season, a card sent at the right time, a meal provided for, helping unpack, whatever it may be. There's ways in which we can creatively display and witness to the glory of the kingdom that doesn't just include accosting people with words. But at some point, Jesus has to be proclaimed, yes? Yes? You don't just get that from helping somebody move. Oh, man, the way you carried those boxes was so cruciform. It was amazing. Uh, it's not how it works. And so here, what should happen is that the people should tremble and be not run from the Lord, but run to him. Now, here's what John Calvin says of this passage. He says, Joel bids the inhabitants of the land to tremble. There should be an outward manifestation. They recognize the gravity of the situation. By these words, he intimates that we are not to trifle with God by vain ceremonies, but to deal with him in earnest. Now, vain ceremonies, what are they? How many of you, this is a rhetorical question, so you leave your hands down. This is not a time for confession. How many of you, feel really good about how, how prepared you were for worship this morning. I mean, you came in strong. You were ready. You were ready. You had, you had, man, you had prayed the call to worship. You, you just about had it memorized. You were ready for that assurance of pardon. You couldn't wait to get to it. You had played the song list. I mean, you, you, you really were ready to sing out because you knew exactly when, when Josh was going to go, la, and the man was going to go, la. I, I don't know if there was a difference. Right? You, you were ready. You, you were prayed up. You've been praying for fruit. You may have even fasted. What? In preparation for this service. Is that, does that make this vain? Does that mean we're trifling with God? Well, let's be careful. Maybe. Better question is, do you recognize that God promised to meet with us here? That when we gather together, regardless of what you feel, regardless of Josh messing up that note up here for God and everybody to see, uh, regardless of, of, of me chasing some rabbit down some trail somewhere and you're wondering if we're ever going to get out of here alive, regardless of any and all that, 
Do you, do you recognize that God said, when y'all get together, I'll be there, regardless of how you come in, but, but know that, know that I'm, I'm going to be there. It's not that you have to over-prepare, and it's not that you have to come in amazing, glistening with the Shekinah glory already on you, right? It's not that you have to come in like that. I, I'd love it if we did. But it ain't always like that, is it? But do remember that this, you showing up, didn't do God any favors. You showing up is doing you a favor. It's doing us a favor. It is, it is allowing us to benefit from your gifts and your abilities and, and the ability to minister to you and be ministered to by you regardless of how you came in. It's the opportunity for us to see how God is at work in each of our lives. What a gift if we just get to know each other, right? What a gift if we would just pray with each other. Take that opportunity, the opportunity that God grants us every time we gather together knowing that something is happening that we don't even know about. It's coming, coming from heaven some kind of way. But it matters here on the earth. Listen to what else Calvin has to say. He says, we're not to trifle with God by vain ceremonies, but to deal with him in earnest. When, therefore, the trumpets sound, our hearts ought to tremble. And thus, the reality is to be connected with outward signs. And this ought to be carefully noticed. For the world is ever disposed to have an eye to some outward service. And, th and thinks that a satisfaction is given to God when some external right is observed. So in essence, again, we think, well, Pastor, what do you want from me? I mean, I made it here, and then enough. Pastor, what do you want from me? I, 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 I put a check in the basket, okay? Fine. Is that the heart of one who's worshiping the God who has forgiven them? Who has silenced Sinai's loud thunder against you? No, we, we, should, we should be the ones who recognize what God has promised, and what a great gift he is to us, and how that should affect our countenance, how that should affect who and whose we are and how we witness as we go about our spheres of influence. Listen to what else he says. But we do nothing but mock God when we present him with ceremonies while there is no corresponding sincere feeling in the heart. And this we shall find handled in Joel chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. So let me ask you, what causes you to turn and seek the Lord? Is it his goodness? Does his goodness draw you to him? Is it his forgiveness? Is it Christ? Is it bad times roll in? Is it only when things go wrong? It's worth us thinking about how we should seek the Lord while he may be found, and he may be found in more places than we give him credit for. And then how does the impact of the coming day of the Lord affect your interactions with those in your spheres of influence? Does it bother you at all that they, those who are around you, may not know Christ as Savior? Does it bother you at all that they will not be able to dwell with you, with us, all in the midst of all things being made new in eternity. And again, the place to start is prayer. Pray for opportunity, right? You don't have to go attack them on Monday morning or sometime tonight. 
But instead to pray for the opportunity, and I've seen the Lord be so gracious. I remember one time in particular uh, when I was a physical therapist, uh, I had my first patient uh, was a guy named John David. And John David was a used car salesman, if you know anything about it. So you, and he was pretty, pretty typical of that, but I loved John David. He was, he was a wild man. I would prayed just that morning. I was like, Lord, I, I would love to share the gospel with somebody today, and it would be so clear. And as I said, amen, I was sitting in my chair, and I turned around, and John David's walking in, and he is bawling his eyes out. He's a grown, tough man. I mean, he just, that's not, that was, I'm like, okay. All right, we're not even going to do a warm-up. We're just going to go straight in. Okay, we can do that. And so I had the opportunity to share the gospel with John David, and uh, eventually he accepts Christ, and we started meeting. And uh, while John David and I have not kept up over the years, because uh, once I had helped him with his ACL, life went in different directions for the two of us, we'll see each other in the new heavens, new earth. The Lord does answer our prayers. He does grant us opportunities to glorify him. And so if you're concerned at all about those around you in spheres of influence, make it an issue of prayer, not an issue of you rushing in unprepared and the ground unprepared, for those of you who are concerned. And then be prepared for sure that the Lord will grant you opportunities that are genuine and substantive and real. Because he is good. And he longs for this family to get bigger. Let's turn back to the text and look at verses 10 and 11 from chapter 2. This is a, a summary, in a sense, of, of what he has just detailed as thundering from Zion. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened. And the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army. For his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Now, interestingly, we see yet again that creation responds. Right? Remember last time uh, from chapter 1, we saw that, that, in a sense, there was the language of prayer used about the cattle as they were suffering under the weight uh, of, of God's judgment. That they at least understood to whom do you turn when you have a need. And if the animals can get it, why can't we? Well, if creation trembles at the coming of judgment and recognizes the coming of the Lord and the cost that it could be to those that don't become sons and daughters of the God Most High, how much more should we tremble? And notice that we were called to tremble first, but it's creation that responds to its creator first. And notice again, he makes it very clear that you're not going to thwart this army. You're not going to make an argument that says you get out of judgment free by your own actions, righteousness, or inaction, or things you haven't done. That's not how that works. We will all be affected by it in some way. And this is one of the places where uh, Scripture uses questions to really kind of leave it hanging a bit. And so when he says, who can endure this great and awesome day that's coming, what's the answer? No one with an asterisk. No one can in their own abilities. Right? Remember Romans chapter 3, who's righteous? Who in and of themselves, and by the way, Romans 3 is quoting two psalms that are similar. 
But who's righteous? No one. Remember who he's comparing. He had the Gentiles on one side who had no law, who kind of had left of their own devices, had, had worshipped uh, the created order and made idols for themselves and used each other in their own sexuality in ways that were completely unnatural. They had everything all messed up. And yet, the ones who had the law were doing some of the same things, actually, and trying to hide under the umbrella of the law or the Abrahamic covenant or something. And Paul wanted to make sure that they understood that the ground in front of the cross is level. Everybody is in need. No one claims righteousness in and of and for themselves. It is only the one for whom Christ has propitiated or paid for their sin, right? I love the way uh, Josh talked about it earlier, that our sin, it has been nailed to the cross with Christ. That's a description from Colossians chapter 2. And so if all are in need and no one can stand, and yet God who longs to be known as the great justifier, that's language from Romans 3, he, he gives Christ his propitiation. He provides what is needed. So it's only the one who can endure is only in Christ alone, through faith alone, by God's grace alone. And what an amazing thing that, again, I point to Daniel. You know, he's a great guy. He did everything right even as a teenager. What teenager can argue they've done everything right? And he could say that. He could say that even in exile. He didn't give in even when it, when it would have been justifiable in most of our eyes to give in and eat at the king's table, the richest of meats and the finest of wines, which actually he had been promised in Isaiah that one day he would have access to all that in a better way. And yet, he took the stroke of judgment that was upon the whole of the people. He didn't try to argue his way out, and he continued to care about his spheres of influence. Remember Jeremiah. Like, when you go into exile, what are you supposed to do? Make signs and tell everybody how wrong they are and how much you hate it here, right? Isn't that what it says in Jeremiah 29? It says something about the internet or something, right? No, it doesn't at all. In fact, what it says is purchase houses, have kids, plant gardens, witness to the glory of God even in exile so that when I pull you out in 70 years, you'll know you'll be ready for what you're being pulled out to. But I think we forget that this is, between the now and the not yet, is practice run for us. It really is us getting ready in great measure, to be able to tolerate all the goodness that we're going to have coming to us in new heavens, new earth. Which is why we got to be a people who are rich in the ability to lament what is not yet and what is wrong now. Also be a people who are rich in the ability to celebrate what is not yet and even celebrate what God is doing in the now. It just depends on what time it is. And so when he says, who can endure it? The great answer that we have is those who are in Christ. So if you would, uh, flip to Romans chapter 5. This is worth our reading and hearing that the answer to the question is, this is the one who's rent their heart and not just their garment. But it is Christ who has done it for us. It is Christ who has justified us 
And listen at these glorious words from, from Paul's words to the Romans, this just glory of the gospel. Therefore, I'm picking it up in 5 verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now, what does that mean? We learned that in Ephesians, that peace is what? It is complete restoration. There is nothing left undone. There's nothing left to be done. It means that we are fully at rest, fully embraced, fully loved by the Lord our God. We are at peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Did you hear that? The grace in which we stand. I love the way Rich Mullins says it in the song. Not only is it grace in which we stand, but let it also be that same grace when we fall. Let us fall upon that grace. But in this case, he's talking about being able to stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that we rejoice in our sufferings, but we, I'm sorry, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So yes, in Joel's day, these were hard words, but it was a suffering that could shape character and hope like nothing else can. Yes, we live in interesting times. Yes, there is at, at, at different points what looks like no hope for the future in a variety of ways. And yet, it is that those things and how we respond to them with lamentation and repentance that leads to celebrating and hope and joy. It shapes our character in ways that nothing else can. We must have a rich theology of suffering and lamentation in order to have a rich theology of hope and joy. You can't have one without the other. For while we were still weak, listen to this, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while, listen, we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So when you've got a sinful family member or a sinner for a neighbor or a sinner for a co-worker, just remember, that's not cause for you not to love them. Because remember, the battle is not against flesh and blood, what we learned from Ephesians. Let's not forget that. The battle is against the powers of darkness, principalities and powers, the, the, the spiritual forces, as it were. And the best way to combat that is prayer. And using the means of grace instead of the weapons of the world, our mouths, uh, against them. Instead, we should be speaking words fitly spoken. Verse 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Did you hear that? So what's the answer to the question, who can endure the day of the Lord? Those who stand in Christ alone, by faith alone, through God's grace alone. More than that, more than that, yes, 
More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That means between the now and the not yet, we can rejoice. We can laugh at the hilarity of sin and its, and its attempts to define us, its attempts to tell us that this is the end of the story. You're never going to mean anything. You're never going to be anything. No, we get to say louder, God loves you and sent Christ to die at the right time. We can say that the Holy Spirit indwells you. You have been granted a dignity in the image bearing of God that is unique and beautiful. You can express that in ways that are beneficial to the kingdom of God. You are not a liability. You're a gift. You may say, that sounds awful mushy, Cameron. Just go around telling people their gifts. You probably watched some stuff about Mr. Rogers recently. Yeah, I did. And I'm reading the biography. It's messing me up real bad. Because I'm not nice like Mr. Rogers, naturally. And I know it's theology. You know, we'll have a conversation about it when we get to heaven. We'll have plenty of time to get it all worked out, which one of us is wrong about what. Well, the one thing I can say is he actually did get the image bearing. He loved people in a way that I just can't even get my head around. If you've seen the uh, Won't You Be My Neighbor documentary, the part that I'm just blown away by is the one guy that's just rougher than a, a cob as a human being who worked on his production team. He's tatted up and he's got a ponytail and he's just mean. And he, he refers to the kids with a really negative term. He doesn't seem to be bothered by that. And, and he was just, he kind of was a weird guy. And he took pictures of his anatomy with people's cameras and all kind of weird stuff, okay? So he's not the nicest guy you've ever met. But in the end, when they played Mr. Rogers, one of his last speeches, this guy tears up and is a broken human being. And it's not, you could just see that Mr. Rogers had such an impact on his life. Also loved when he was before the, the uh, Congressional Commission, they're going to take $20 million from PBS. And the, I think it's the senator from New York. He's just been tearing everybody apart as they're coming. And Mr. Rogers is the last to go. And Mr. Rogers is nervous. Even if he wasn't nervous, it's not like he puts forth like this really forceful personality in a setting like that. You wouldn't think it would work at all. And yet, this guy goes after him pretty quick and he says, are you just going to read to me what I already have? Because I'm getting tired of that. And Mr. Rogers says, no, sir, I'm going I'm to trust you to do what I expect my children to do, which is keep their word. So the guy's like, oh, okay. <laughs> Would it make you feel better, Mr. Rogers, to read it? And he's being mocking. Mr. Rogers says, no, sir. And he just goes on to explain what he's trying to do with Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. Fascinatingly, you can watch this guy transformed. He goes from just hostile New Yorker, congressional guy who wants to take $20 million from PBS to being drawn into some bigger story. He just melts. He goes, and he, and he kind of, and the wave of his hand is fascinating. He waves his hand and goes, you just got yourself $20 million. He goes, just, he's blown away. He's speechless. Soft answer turns away wrath. Us knowing we are forgiven, though we are in a fallen world between the now and the not yet, can really make a difference to those around us. No, you don't have to be Mr. Rogers because I'm not and I'm never going to be. I've tried and people just think it's weird. They think I've lost my mind or something. <laughs> it really does go back, it backfires on me. I tried. I'm like, I try to be like, hey, how are you doing? You doing okay? And they're like, are you sick? Like, is he, 
Is this a joke? <laughs> is something wrong with it? Uh, but what we can do is, is make a difference with the gifts and abilities that God has given to us, even though the day of the Lord is drawing nearer than it was, right? And you may say, well, I ain't come yet. When's it coming? Well, they asked the same question in 2 Peter. It was a mocking question, and God said, I'm being patient because I want the family to get big, because I love y'all. And so God is patient because he loves us. And so let me ask you this. We, we, we know that the only people who can endure the day of the Lord, those who are in Christ. Well, how does the answer to that question affect your interactions with those in your spheres of influence? Does it matter to you at all? Does it, does it change anything at all for you? Well, the answer to that question hinges on our understanding of the gospel, what we're really here, what we're here for. We're not just here for our sake. We're here for the life of the world. So Joel 2, 1 through 11, teaches us at least a couple of things. But first and foremost, that we should take the impact of the coming day of the Lord seriously for ourselves and for those in our spheres of influence. It's going to matter. And then that we are called to endure the coming day of the Lord by faith alone and Christ alone through God's grace alone. And so as I close this sermon, I, I, I think it'll come up on the screen here. There's, a, there's a, actually a prayer by John Calvin from this particular passage. And I'd like for us uh, to read it together. So if you would, go ahead and stand. Uh, usually I close with prayer, but we're going to do this as a community. Um, I think it's up there. Yeah, I, I see it. So we're going to read this together. Uh, in fact, the band, can, y'all can go ahead and make your way up here. Uh, we've got one last song. And then, uh, and then a few announcements for you. And, uh, and if you would like to talk to Mike about the disaster response stuff, he'll be in the lobby. Grab him. If you'd like to sign up for the training this coming Saturday, uh, he's got information for that. But make sure you avail yourself of that. But uh, if you would join me in reading this prayer, I, and I was very affected by it, and hopefully you will be too. Grant, Almighty God, that as Thou invites us daily with such, so much kindness and love, and makes known to us thy paternal goodwill, which thou didst once show to us in Christ thy Son. O grant that being allured by the goodness, we may surrender ourselves wholly to thee, and become so teachable and submissive, that wherever thou guidest us by thy Spirit, thou mayest follow us with every blessing. Let us not in the meantime... Be deaf to thy warnings, and whenever we deviate from the right way, grant that we may immediately awake when thou warnest us, and return to the right path, and design thou also to embrace us, and reconcile us to thyself, through Christ our Lord. Amen.